started by talking about how, uh, or maybe a better way of saying that is why, the scripture is authoritative in our lives. That's where we started. That has to be the foundation. Uh, and I said, before we can really understand scripture, we have to stand under it. We have to understand and realize its authority in our life. Uh, that's where we started. Last week, uh, we, I gave you five really practical things that I called the big five. And it was five sort of perspectives on how to read the scriptures and how to read any passage of the Bible. Uh, and and I, someone came to me afterward and said, I have a better name than the big five. And that is, I think you should call it the high five. Uh, and I totally agreed with this person. And so from now and forevermore, those five perspectives will be known as the high five. Okay? Uh, the high five. Uh, but those things were about and then context and then message uh, and, and then place. In other words, finding its place in scripture. How does that passage of scripture either point us forward to the cross or point us backward to the cross uh, and then application we have to apply it and I hope that was uh, helpful to you Uh, what I want to do today is I want to help you to get to know your bible Uh, I, I want to teach you very practical ground level sorts of things of how to open up the bible that you have in your hands today or on your bookshelf at home and learn how to read and use the tools that are built into your Bible uh, to study the Bible. Last week, I talked to you about some external resources, the Bible handbook, the Bible dictionary. Today, I want to say you can study the Bible using just the Bible itself and the tools and the helps that are within your Bible. Uh, And so you know today is going to be a holy, holy sermon because I have brought to the stage with me three Bibles. Not just one, but three Bibles. So this is an extra holy sunday uh i have the the trinity of bibles up here with me so um so anyway that that probably went from the line of of joke to heresy but um that's all right so so let's let's jump right in okay let's say you you buy a bible at the bible superstore at amazon at walmart whatever your favorite book reseller is you buy a bible or you pick up the bible that's on your bookshelf uh, maybe you've uh, not read the Bible in a long time or, or ever, and as a result of this series, you're more motivated to read the scriptures. And so you open it up. When you open up the very first cover of your Bible and you turn the pages, what you will find at the very beginning is a preface. And what this preface is, is it is an introduction to the translation of the Bible that you have picked up. So many of you have questions about what Bible translations are what and what's the difference between this and why this one over that one or why this one or that one because there are literally hundreds of Bible translations in the English language and it can be an absolute hot mess to try to research and study all of the different translations and the differences between them. But did you know that in your Bible, in the preface, is an explanation of that translation. I'll bet you never knew that. And so in the front of your Bible, you'll find an introduction to that version or that translation of the Bible. There's hundreds of translations of the Bible. Let me, they, they break down into three categories. Now listen, this is all ground level stuff and I want to encourage you uh, this week, the same truth is, is, is for what I said last week. And that is to say that a sermon is like a can of paint. The value is in the application, right? 
And I said last week that too many Christians are just trying to collect paint and they never take off the lid and get their brush dirty. And so what I want to do is I want to teach you about the footnotes and the margins and the, what's at the front of the text and the back of the text. And I want to give you all this sort of ground level stuff as, as a paint can. I want to hand you a paint can so that you can go home and paint. You with me? And so, uh, so that's the value of ground level stuff is in the application. So most translations fall into three primary headings. One is word for word. Lots of English translations uh, are seeking to take the Greek manuscripts that we learned about last week and translate them word for word as much as possible. Uh, these translations uh, are the most accurate to the Greek language, but they're also the, the, the clunkiest to read sometimes. Uh, because you are, they're sacrificing readability for accuracy. And so they're saying, whether this may feel a little bit clunky in English, but because it's accurate to the Greek, that's the move that we're going to make. And so there's lots of translations that their goal is not necessarily readability as much as it is accuracy to the original translation. These are word-for-word translations. Uh, a good example of this, there are many more, but a good example of this, and probably the most commonly read in this uh, in this section of translations is the English Standard Version, the ESV. Uh, I know that our staff member, Justin Jones, is a great fan of the ESV. And I say, that stuff is just hard to read, you know? Uh, and he's like, not if you're smart. And so, and I'm just like, all right. And so that's how it goes. And so we, we banter back and forth, and uh, that's how it ends, is we just agree to disagree. The second... Um, the second kind of translation is the most popular and most widely used, and that is thought for thought. That is to say that they are taking uh, this Greek verse as a whole and translating the thought. And they're obviously doing a lot of words that are the same, but instead of just word for word and sacrificing readability, they're saying readability is really important and accuracy is really important. And so we're going to make sure that we're using the right translated words, but we're going to order them in a way that makes sense in English. Uh, This is most translations fall under this. And the most popular translation of the Bible ever is in this category. That is the New International Version. Uh, New International Version. If you have an NIV, chances are you do. It's the most popular. But if you have an NIV, uh, what you may not also, well, you may not know uh, that the NIV first came out in the 70s, but about every 10 years has been updated. And so they, they did it, I think, in 78 or 79. Then they did it again in 86. Uh, then uh, in the early 2000s, they came out with something called Today's New International Version, the TNIV. Well, then a few years later, they dumped the TNIV to, today, to actual Today's New International Version, the most recent one, which was around 2006. But if you go into, again, if you open your NIV to the very first preface pages, uh, you will find not only when that translation was done, But you'll also find in that preface an explanation of uh, how it came about. In other words, what committee of people were involved? When did they do it? uh, How old is it? All those kinds of things. And then what were the goals in the translation? In other words, since we have hundreds of translations, why would you make another one, right? Well, this committee of translators has a particular goal in mind and what contribution they want to make. Uh, to the Word of God and the trans- translation of the Word of God. And so in that preface is all this really helpful information. And then also makes, uh, if there's any special notes 
on particular words and how they've chosen to translate those words, uh, then those appear in the preface as well. Uh, So this is a really helpful thing if you just want to get to know your translation. If you don't care, then don't read it. Uh, But if you do care, then that is built right into your uh, Bible. In other words, you don't have to Google it. You just open your Bible. Um, And any time that you don't have to Google something in our world, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Um, And I Google plenty of things, but it's a good thing when you don't have to to Google it. Uh, So you have word for word, you have thought for thought, and then you have a paraphrase. Uh, Paraphrases are trying to echo the impact of Scripture. Where one is word for word, the next one is thought for thought. A paraphrase is trying to echo the impact of that particular verse or paragraph or passage of Scripture's. Uh, Paraphrases are right on the blurry line between being just that, a paraphrase or an actual translation. Uh, Some would not fall into the category of being a translation. In other words, they're not working from original Greek and Hebrew manuscripts. They're working from maybe an English version, and then they're paraphrasing that just into modern English uh, and modern vernacular. Uh, So a couple of of examples of these are... um, it, let's say if you're maybe 40 or 50 or older, you probably have heard of the Living Bible. Uh, if you are 40 or under, you've probably heard of the Message. Uh, these are paraphrases uh, of Scripture. Uh, the New Living Translation, in my opinion, falls in that blurry middle ground between a translation and a paraphrase. Uh, so I don't like the NLT. If you have an NLT and you, you're reading it, Awesome. Okay, that's great, right? Because some of you might say, well, what's Pastor Andy's opinion about Bible translations? I love them all if you're reading it. <laughs> that's it. Like, like, I wouldn't encourage you to do like a Greek word study from the message, but if you're reading your Bible, that is awesome, okay? And I believe that the grace and the goodness of God is is big enough that I don't say that there's just one translation that is the word of God and everything else is, is not. I think that, that God is big enough to be involved in all the translations. All right, and, and like I said, uh, Bibles are like a can of paint, okay? There's so many things that are like a can of paint. The value is in the application. So, uh, so there you go. Paraphrases, I think, are helpful for devotional reading, but I wouldn't do uh, study, and I don't do study uh, from uh, paraphrases such as the message. All right. Uh, so then, after you get to the, to the preface, is this helpful? You didn't know you had a preface? Uh, after the preface, preface, <laughs> is the table of contents. Let me say one thing about the table of contents. Don't feel bad about using it. There, I said it. A lot of times, if we're unfamiliar with Scripture, we, we, we just flip through. No, I can't find it. No, I can't find it. There's a table of contents. There is no guilt. There is no shame. And you should not feel bad for using it. Okay, that's all I have to say about that. Uh, then after the text, that's before the text. Now, depending on what Bible you have, there may be a lot more before the text. But generally speaking... It's, uh, it's, it's the, the preface, and then it's the, the table of contents. Sometimes there is like a table of units and measures 
before the text, sometimes it's after the text. Uh, and that is to help you that when you have all these measurements about how big the temple ought to be, and it's not feet or anything that we're familiar with, uh, or meters or anything, uh, or when it's like, uh, you know, Judas was paid two denarius to deny Jesus, then it's like, well, what, I mean, is that two pennies or what is that? Yeah. So, so you have all these uh, measurements in the Bible. Uh, most of your Bibles will have a table of measurements and units that translates those and helps give you an idea of the scale and the scope and how much this is worth and all of those kinds of things. Sometimes it's before the text, other times it's after the text. But after the text in most Bibles will be a concordance. A concordance is where you can look up any word and you look it up in alphabetical order and it will tell you how many of the, it will tell you what passages use that word. So this is a helpful thing. If you're doing a word study uh, on the heart, say, uh, which is a new sermon series that we're going to start next week for Christmas. I snuck that in, didn't I? Next week, new series, Heart Matters. Uh, and so if you're doing a word study on heart, a great place to start would be the concordance and say, where, what are the Bible passages that use the word heart? And you look them up in uh, alphabetical order. Some concordances will also function as a dictionary. So it will tell you uh, the definition of the word and then all the passages uh, where it's found. Uh, so you have a little mini concordance in the back of your Bible, most likely. Uh, they have big, hardbound versions like, that are complete concordances, and so it will tell many more words, and it will tell every passage where they're found. Uh, but let's just be honest, a big, hardbound book uh, like that seems a bit archaic in 2013. So a great online resource uh, to do word studies is uh, BibleGateway.com. BibleGateway.com is you can search for any passage, so it's an online Bible, in any English translation, almost. They don't have my favorite uh, there, and I'm still bitter about that. Uh, but almost any English translation. And then you can also search for any word in any translation. So you could search for the word heart in the NIV uh, or the word heart in the ESV. Uh, and, and you can compare those. So BibleGateway.com is a very great resource uh, for a concordance. Uh, the, back of your te- the back of your Bible also has maps. Uh, It has probably maps of ancient Israel. It has maps of the Exodus wilderness journeys. And that is where did the nation of Israel go after the Exodus where they were wandering around for 40 years. Uh, It most likely has a map of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. And maybe it has an even uh, narrowed in view of what the temple looked like in in the outer courts and the inner courts and the the, the Holy of Holies, all of those kinds of things. Uh, Paul, in the book of Acts, we have recorded all of his missionary journeys where he was going around planting churches. And it might be helpful to realize how far away are these places from one another? What is the geographical locations of these places? The maps in the back of your Bible probably map out Paul's missionary journeys. Uh, he went on three different journeys. Those are all uh, probably mapped out in there. If you want an online resource, this is really helpful, BibleMap.org, BibleMap.org. Uh, you can pick any passage in the Bible, and it will show you, uh, it show, it will show you a modern-day Google Map picture of that area. Pretty cool, right? So uh, Luke chapter 2, the Christmas story, Bethlehem. If there is a location associated with that Bible passage, BibleMap.org will will tell you this is where this 
thing happened that we know of or best estimation, and then it will give you a modern-day Google map of that area. Uh, and, and then I believe it also has, uh, you can put an ancient sort of overlay on that. So how, how does the modern-day uh, compare to the ancient maps? So pretty, pretty helpful. Uh, you can also read at BibleMap.org, you can read a history of that location and how many other times that location is in the Bible. So what else happened at Bethlehem, right? Uh, so it's pretty cool. So those are some great online resources uh, to help you. Uh, there are other helps uh, also in the back of your Bible, and this depends on what Bible you have. For example, uh, this Bible, I believe I got for my high school graduation. Uh, I wanted the tabs, right? Uh, because I didn't want to flip through, and I, I was shameful about using the table of contents. And so this just has little tabs on there. Uh, so I wanted a tabbed Bible of how I could quickly find things. Uh, but this, uh, this Bible, of any other Bible I've ever had, has the most sort of helps in the back. Uh, and, and this uh, has helps like Bible verses for daily life. So uh, maybe one day you're feeling uh, depressed and you can look in the Bible helps and they'll have passages of scripture that will help lift your spirits if you're feeling down and depressed or discouraged. Uh, there'll be other things as well. Um, in there. It'll have reading suggestions. This Bible has uh, 100 famous, 150 famous Bible stories. It says uh, it has all the miracles of Jesus, and here's where they all are, and how you can find them, and where you can find them. There's all sorts of reading helps. In fact, uh, when I was using this Bible uh, on a more regular basis, I uh, would use those as a reading plan. It was like, well, I just want to read the miracles of Jesus, and I would just walk right through there uh, and do that. And so there's, this is really helpful. Uh, it also has prayers of the Bible or prayers of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the life of the nation of Israel, uh, the table of measurements and units I, I, I uh, mentioned. You know, there are all kinds of different helps that are dependent on whatever Bible you buy or pick out. And so really what I want to tell you is if you're in the market for a new Bible, go to the Bible Superstore and, and, and actually look at some Bibles. Uh, I like Amazon as much as, as much as the next guy, but if you can go to the store, put your hands on the Bible, and look at the helps before and after, uh, then you might be able to say, this, this Bible will help me uh, because it has all these extra uh, ways of leading me to read the Scripture. Is this helpful at all? I need like some amens or some encouragement or something up here. I just feel like, anyway. So, so, uh, so pick out a Bible that you feel like is going to help you. And if you have a Bible that you read it and you're like, it doesn't have any. If you look at your Bible and it's, it's a pew Bible, which means it doesn't have anything. It has a preface, a table of contents, and the scripture. That's it. Then go and get you a new Bible. And, and look at the helps in the back and see what might uh, be a help to you. Uh, when I was ordained, uh, I got this Bible, uh, which is the Bible I preach from each Sunday. And this is actually uh, a minister's Bible. And, and so in the back, instead of, um, you know, daily helps and prayers and things like that, it's like how to lead a wedding and how to preach through a funeral. And, of course, it's got the maps and everything, too, but it's got specific to pastors and people in ministry. So, uh, so that's a helpful thing. Um, but anyway, find a Bible that will work for you and read it. All right. What about in the text? 
in the text? What are the helps that are inside the text themselves? Uh, well, depending on which Bible you have, uh, and probably if you have a study Bible, uh, then inside of your Bible will be all kinds of helps as well. Uh, when I was in seminary, uh, this was the Bible of choice by all the students. It's the NRSV uh, translation, the new revised standard. And it fits sort of in the middle ground between the thought for thought and word for word. In other words, it's really readable, but very, very accurate. Uh, this happens to be my favorite translation, but probably just because I was brainwashed to believe that in seminary. Uh, and, and so, um, but anyway, this is the Harper Study Bible. Study Bibles are really great because inside of the text, when you get to a new book of the Bible, it will have an introduction to that book. And what that does is it tells you uh, who wrote it, where they were when they wrote it, uh, when they wrote it, who they were writing to, and major theological themes. Do those things sound familiar in any way? In other words, uh, if you are wanting to do the high five and study the scriptures and you have a study Bible, it most likely has introductions to the book that will help you that you don't necessarily need to go out and buy a Bible handbook and a Bible dictionary. Now, they're not going to be as detailed as the handbook and the dictionary, but it's a great start for finding out about and the context and the message. And so inside of your, uh, of your Bibles, if you have a study Bible, is an introduction uh, to the book. It includes all of those things. It includes an outline of the book. Really, really helpful uh, to just read through that introduction so that when you read the book, the actual text, the real Bible, right? When you actually get to reading the real Bible, you have some sort of framework or context or lens through which to read it because you understand who wrote it and where and when and to whom and what it was like and what that city was like and what was going on and the major theological themes. That's why when you read the book of Philippians, you can read it a hundred times and never realize that over 80 times in this small little book, Paul says the word joy or rejoice or joyful, right? But if you read the introduction, they're going to tell you, pay attention that this book is about joy in the midst of all circumstances. Because it's not about, joy is not based and not determined by what happens to me, but by what God is doing in me and through me, right? Uh, and, and so there's, there's the, the help of introductions. Uh, then, um, your, your Bible also has footnotes. Uh, has footnotes. footnotes uh, will offer alternative translations, right? So like, Here's what we decided to translate here. But by the way, other people have chosen to translate it in this way. Uh, just kind of an FYI, a four-year information. This is another possible translation. So it offers alternative translations. Uh, it offers notes on the Greek. So it might say, the Greek word here is this. And, and that's really helpful especially if you've been looking at uh, the Bible handbook or the, or the dictionary or if you've uh, looked at uh, other Greek word studies. I have a great website, too, uh, for Greek and Hebrew word studies. Maybe I'll email that out to the church this week. Uh, but it, it has notes on the Greek, whether it's the word itself or how this word is used. Uh, it also has differences in interpretation. In other words, uh, there's, in the passage we'll look at today for our, our case study of how to actually put all this into practice, uh, there is a uh, footnote that says other interpreters end the quotation at verse 15. So it might be, here's the words of Jesus, right? And, and, and we're pretty sure that he said these, and so they're in red. But 
there's, there's some debate about whether he actually said this last part directly or if that's the gospel writer speaking. Uh, and, and so it's just really helpful not to place seeds of doubt in your mind about anything in particular, but just to gather more information to apply the word of God. Remember, information is always for the purpose of transformation. Are you with me? Uh, So there's footnotes, and then uh, we'll look at middle margins. Middle margins are the cross-references, which give you other passages that use the same phrase, uh, use the same word, or if, this is really helpful, if in the New Testament a story from the Old Testament is referenced, then then the the cross-reference will will tell you where that story is found in the Old Testament. And so it's like, uh, well, the passage we're going to look at today is like, when Moses held up the snake. Awesome. Yeah, I remember that from perfect memory. I remember, I remember when Moses held up the snake like it was yesterday. No, you don't, and neither do I. Right? And so you just like, so, but thank goodness there's a little footnote. This, there's, a, there's a little cross-reference that says, here's that story. Uh, and so, uh, so inside the text are the book introductions, the footnotes, and the middle margins. We could talk about this in theory all day, but let's do a case study. Are you ready? And we're going to do this quickly. And uh, I'm going to try to preach a little bit as well. Uh, because what I've been doing up to this point is teaching. And uh, I don't like to just teach. I like to preach. And so, so let's get it done. John 3.16, verses 14 through 16. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Um, I want to study probably the most famous passage in the world using these helps from Scripture to show you there's more to this passage than you think. Okay, John 3.16. Let's look at it. And this is a picture of of this Bible. And I did that so that you can see all the footnotes and and all the little italicized numbers and letters and all of that. And we'll go through what those mean. Uh, But this is is it. John 3, starting with verse 14, going through verse 16. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert. Remember that? Good. So the Son of Man must be lifted up. That everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And if you're old enough to have learned it in the King James, you know that it should say his only begotten son. His only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him, right? This is is how I learned it. Believeth in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Uh, let me show you a picture of the footnotes. Uh, the footnotes are the letters that are italicized. Uh, and then in the footnotes, it shows you the verse that is associated with that footnote. So, for example, uh, in verse 15, there's a footnote E at the very end that is not italicized. The italicized ones are the cross-reference. The bolded ones are the footnotes in this Bible. Okay? Your Bible may be a little bit different. Look at it. Learn it. Figure out which is which. But each, every Bible has a system. So in my Bible, the bolded notes are the footnotes. The italicized ones are a cross-reference. Are you with me? I'm trying to make it as confusing as possible. Um, and, and so there's a footnote E... In verse 15, so that's where we have that. And it says, or believes may have eternal life in him. 
And so what this is offering is a different translation, an alternate translation, right? Remember, sometimes footnotes offer a different way of saying it. Well, well, that doesn't make any sense. I thought it did say that. Well, no, the difference is this. In the text, it says that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And they're saying in the footnote that an alternate way of understanding this is that everyone that believes may have eternal life in him. It's subtle. But what happens is in the Greek, we're not really sure where to put the in him. Right? And so some people are like eternal life in him or believe in him and then you have eternal life. And so it's just an alternate way of translating that particular passage and understanding that particular passage, okay? Uh, So then the next one is in verse 16, uh, and it says, my favorite, or his only begotten son. We could say his one and only son, or we could say his only begotten son. Uh, And and so, you know, some of you are like, you know, well, yeah, you know, and so that's, that's what you'll find in the footnotes of your scriptures. Sometimes it's like, well, yeah, and then other times it's like, whoa, Right? Okay? And so, but, but read it and use it, and, and I think you'll find it helpful. Okay. Uh, now, I also want you to notice the footnote C, which I did not highlight. Footnote C from verse 7. And so the way you can find that is you just go up to verse 7 in chapter 3, and you'll find a footnote C. And what you'll find is this. In verse 7, it says this. You should not be surprised at my saying... You, footnote C, must be born again. And the footnote is about the Greek. And it says here that the you in Greek is plural. Now this changes everything. Because in our modern church, we have made salvation and our church life and our life of faith so individualistic, right? Because that's the culture in which we live. Everything is about you. It's about your choice. It's about what you'd want. It's about your desire. It's about you. In fact, we have billboards from from saying that the, the checking account that you have at our bank is about you. Everything's about you. And we only have one word in English for you. It's you. And it could be you or it could be you. Or as they say in Texas, y'all. And so what this passage of scripture is saying is, y'all must be born again. Yeah, right? And what he's, in other words, he's talking to the community, right? But we, we read the you and we're like, yeah, it's you. It's, it's me because everything's about me. But it's not about you. It's about y'all. See, that's helpful. And we don't, we don't get that unless we read the footnotes. And so, in fact, I had a, I had a seminary professor who uh, would do his own translations of the Bible. <laughs> and, so, um, and so when he was reading his own passages of Scripture that he had translated, if it was a plural Greek you, he would say y'all. As a way of indicating, it's, a, it's, the, it's to the community. Now, when he read it, and if you're not from Texas, it was just made your ears bleed, you know, because it was just like, 
oh, man, it's just terrible. But if you were from Texas, you're like, man, this guy's talking my language, you know. So, so anyway, uh, so I, I wanted to point that out because as an example of how sometimes it's alternate translations, but other times it's notes about the Greek, and sometimes they make a huge difference about how we understand the passage. And that's built. You don't need a Bible handbook. Uh, you, you don't need a, a Bible dictionary. You don't need a seminary degree to know that. You just need to know how to use and study your own Bible. All right. So, so then let's go to the cross-references. Uh, so here are the, here's a picture of the cross-references for the passage that we read. Uh, 3.14. Uh, let's, let's, let's actually look at these cross-references. Uh, verse 14 begins, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert. W. Well, that's good because I don't exactly remember that story. So let's look at W. It's found in, in Numbers uh, chapter 21, verses 8 and 9. So I looked at Numbers verses 20, chapter 21, verses 8 and 9, and, and I thought, man, that doesn't make a lot of sense. I need a little bit of context of the story as a whole. And I would encourage you to do that when you're looking at cross-references. It's going to give you the exact cross-reference, the precise point that that word, that phrase, that idea, that story happened. The, the exact moment when Moses lifted up the snake. But if all you do is you go to Numbers 21, you read verse 8 and 9, you're like, Moses lifted up a snake. Then you don't have very much more information than you had to begin with. And so you need to read the context of the story. And here it is. Chapter, starting with verse, uh, verse 4 in Numbers 21. They traveled from Mount Hor along the road of the Red Sea to go, uh, to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. And then they spoke against God and Moses. And they said, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness? I mean, there is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food, which happened to be manna from heaven. Well, then the Lord... Let's, let's all learn from this. These folks are complaining against the Lord. And, and look at the next verse. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. And they bit people. That's, that's, uh, that's mean, isn't it? And many Israelites died. Do you ever read the scripture and you're like, can you say that again? Right, because, I mean, God is a God of grace, and he loves you. The nation of Israel is like, why have you sent us out here? I hate this food from heaven. And so the Lord sent venomous snakes, and, and it bit a lot of people, and they died. Well, what happened after that? Well, then the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. Right? I mean, this, you guys are not finding this nearly as entertaining as I do. But that's all right. That's all right. So... So then the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Oh, really? What motivated you to come to that realization? I think it was a snake that bit my family member and then they died. I think that's what motivated me to realize that I did something wrong. And so pray, the, the nation of Israel is asking Moses, their leader, pray that the Lord will, will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people or on behalf of the people. And then the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. And anyone who is bitten can look at it, and they will live. And so Moses made a bronze snake, and he lifted it up on a pole. And when anyone was bitten by the snake, and they looked at the when bitten by a snake, and they looked at the bronze snake, they will live. Now you take that. All of a sudden, 
the, the meaning of just as Moses lifted up the snake, so Jesus must also be lifted up. You begin to see all sorts of connections and things begin to come alive because you could read verse 14 and be like, yeah, that's weird. And Moses did a thing with a snake, but I don't get it and I don't understand it. But at least I can just sort of devotionally understand that the Lord needs to be lifted up in my life. But if we understand it with its cross-reference and when we understand what Jesus is doing in his conversation with Nicodemus, that just like, like here's Nicodemus, a teacher of the law, very familiar with the, the, the storyline of the nation of Israel. And Jesus is pulling on this imagery of when Israel disobeyed, was living sinfully, and yet God in his goodness provided a way to be saved from the consequences of that disobedience. Jesus says, in the same way that Moses lifted up the snake, so also the Son of Man must be lifted up so that all that will believe in him will have eternal life. I mean, he's saying like, in other words, Jesus is saying, you see this, it's really about that. Or you see that, it's really about this. Okay, isn't this fun? I got to hurry. I always found myself in a position of needing to hurry. Verse 14, uh, Cross-reference X, lift it up. John 28, John 8, 28. Do we still have the picture? Okay, good. John 8, 28. Uh, in the, the context of this is there's a dispute over who Jesus is. And so Jesus says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. And lift it up, if you look at the Greek, right? So we've looked at a cross-reference, and then we look at the Greek to, to, to what, what it means to be lifted up. And lifted up literally means to be exalted, to be exalted. And so then it, it, it takes on even more meaning. Verse 15, cross-reference Y for the word believes, and it gives, you'll notice, it just says verse 16 and verse 36. What that means is that it's in the same book, in the same chapter, just those verses. And so if you look at the word believes from verse 15, it's saying we use this again in verse 16, right? Whoever believes in him, and then also in verse 36, okay? So that's how to, how to navigate those numbers and what all of those mean. And when you look at verse 16, it says, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And then verse 36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Let's go to verse 16 with uh, cross-reference letter Z for the word love. Again, for God so loved the world. Well, what does it mean that God loved us? Well, look at these cross-references. Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even though we were dead in our transgressions. That's a beautiful picture. You were dead in your sin, but in Christ you are made alive. This, we're talking about resurrection, and not just a metaphorical resurrection. We're talking about real resurrection here for the believers. For it is by grace you have been saved. And then 1 John 4, 9 and 10. This is how God showed his love among us, that he sent his one and only son into the world, that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us 
and that he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. This means that the love of God, right? If you take these cross-references, you begin to get a picture of the love of God. And by this 1 John passage, you begin to understand that primarily our role is not to love God as much as it is to love him in return for how he's already loved us. In other words, God has taken the initiative, not you. You didn't do anything to earn it. You didn't do anything to, to say that you ought to, uh, that you deserve it. It's, it's God took the initiative. He loved us even before you loved him. And so our love is only, can, can only be returned to him because he's the initiator. He's the one that took the initiative to, to rescue us, to save us, to love us. Cross-references, folks, are so helpful. It gets you a whole picture instead of just saying, oh, this little narrow view of John 3.16. You begin to get a bigger and bigger picture. Then uh, verse 16, cross-reference letter A for the word eternal life. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. John 6, 29, Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one who he has sent. John 6, 40, For uh, my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the son, oh, looks to the son. That sounds a lot like the folks in Israel looking to the snake that Moses raised up. That if you would just look to him, you would have eternal life for my father's will is that everyone would look to the son and believe in him and they shall have eternal life and i will raise them up at the last day and john 11 25 and 26 jesus said to to her i am the resurrection and the life and the one who believes in me will live even though they die and whoever lives by believing in me will never die do you believe this now let me say to you this when you understand this whole package of John 3.16 and the verses surrounding it, what you understand and begin to understand is this will preach. And I don't mean just like the Lord will speak to your pastor so that he can offer it to you. What I mean is that it will preach to you in your study. That's what I mean. Uh, Because the disobedience and ungrateful hearts of the Israelites were leading them to death. When they confessed their sin, God provided a way for them to enter into life. And so Jesus, teaching Nicodemus, draws on this imagery and says, just as Moses was raised up or exalted and he exalted the snake, so the Son of Man must also be exalted or raised up so that everyone who believes in him will not just have life, but will be given eternal life. This isn't just their story. Oh, that nation that God raised up through, through by which Jesus would come into our world. It's not just their story. It's our story. And then in a brilliant tapestry, he weaves together these Themes Number one, the great love of God. In your disobedience, you were surely headed for death. But God has provided a savior just as he provided a way for those, to, for a way of life and to life for those in the desert. So the first theme is the great love of God. The second theme is our belief. Those who will look upon the snake and believe it for life will be given life. And just in the same way as the Lord Jesus is exalted and raised up, we must also look to him and believe. This believing is not just intellectual assent. Yes, I 
agree with that set of historical facts. It's believing in the fact, in the way in which I am now aligning my life to this reality. If you looked at the snake, you had to really believe that the bronze snake could bring you life. You had to align your life to that reality. And what it's teaching us is that believing in Christ is not so much an intellectual exercise as it is an exercise of the heart. And then, so the theme of the love of God, the theme of our belief, and then the theme of eternal life. And I want to point this out. If you follow the cross-reference from John 3.36, right? Because you could cross-reference and never be done. Right? You start here, you cross-reference to John 36, which has a whole set of cross-references. You cross-reference to those, and all of a sudden, it's, it's uh, Monday, and you didn't know what happened, right? And so it's like you, you've got to choose to stop. But if you follow the cross-references from John 3.36, you find this, John chapter 5, verse 24. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal Life. That's different from all the other things we've been told so far about being given eternal life. Here it's you have eternal life. And you will not be judged, uh, but you have crossed over from death to life. Then John 6, 47, very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. In other words, eternal life is not just about the quantity of life that I will live forever and ever. But the scripture seems to say that it's also about the quality of life as something that I currently possess. In other words, through Christ, God wants us to move us from ways of living now that lead us to the path of death and then move us to ways of living now that lead us into life. That's what eternal life is about. It's not so much about where you go when you die as much as it is the way of life God intends for you right now. And you could only learn this through cross-references. You see, every story whispers his name. Even a random story about Moses and a bronze snake. And this is the beauty of seeing and understanding His Word. Thanks for listening to the Emmaus Road Podcast. We hope this message has been encouraging to you. If you'd like to support the ministry of Emmaus Road, you can do so online. Just visit theroadfc.org and click Online Giving.